Well, last week we learned in chapter 3 that Paul has or had shifted his attention away from himself and onto the Galatians who were, um, uh, they had departed from the gospel. And to com- combat the Judaizers who were teaching a so-called gospel of faith in Christ and their own works, uh, rather than a gospel of faith alone, uh, he laid out a kind of a three-point or threefold argument in the first 14 verses explaining why the gospel and their salvation didn't include works at all. In the first five verses, if you remember, he used their own experience. Um, in the next uh, verses six to nine, he used an example of Abraham. And then in verses, or the last five verses, he used an exposition of the law. And in that exposition of the law, uh, he told them that if they turned their backs on Christ and determined to live this law-abiding life, uh, they needed to know something that the Judaizers hadn't been telling them before they made that decision final. Um, And he told them that if they were to to lead this law-keeping or law-abiding life, that they would be or find themselves under a curse because the curse came with this kind of life. And that curse came because if they were going to attempt to justify and sanctify themselves with the law, they had to do that or they had to follow the law completely, perfectly, and consistently. That means that they had to do uh, everything that the Lord wanted them to do. There was no picking and choosing to keep what uh, they thought might be best. Uh, there was no uh, simply giving it you know, their best try possible. And there also uh, wasn't, it wasn't a matter of convenience or good timing or it, you know, the circumstances just had to be right and then they could keep this law or that. If they were going to lead this life and follow the law and seek their salvation through it, it was going to have to be a life of living and and completing the law perfectly all the time without, without question. Therefore, Paul said, if you remember, Paul said that no one is justified or made right with, made right with God. By keeping the law, because no one is able to keep the law as God has determined it should be kept. It was not possible. Therefore, the curse awaited them. And they needed to know that. But he didn't leave them there. Uh, Fortunately for them and fortunately for us, he followed that up with good news. And that good news was, he said, okay, you can live this law-abiding life and you can suffer the consequences of the curse because it's inevitable. Or you can choose the alternative. And the alternative was to continue living by faith. To continue to live the life that, that they had begun through faith in Christ. And he used faith in Christ because it was Christ who had fulfilled all the promises that God had made to Abraham. It was in Christ that 
those promises and, and the benefits of those promises had been made available to everybody else who, like Abraham, lived by faith. All of those benefits were found in Christ. It was Christ who redeemed. It was Christ who purchased. It was Christ who set them free by not only taking on the curse, but by becoming a curse. He became a curse by hanging on his own tree via the cross. And so he paid the penalty and the consequences of all lawbreaking so that they in turn, so that lawbreakers could be looked upon and treated as benefactors of salvation. Because of what Christ had done, they would receive the promised spirit by faith. And of course, we said, fortunately for us, that the same is true and the same is available to us because we come looking to Christ by faith. And we ourselves are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Now this week, Paul continues this course of arguing for a faith alone gospel. He doesn't depart from the argument that he's already begun. And he does that in two ways. He he makes two points in particular. One, he's going to explain the power of the promise as well as the purpose of the law. And in doing so, he's going to answer a very important question that really an inevitable question. And it's a good question. Because if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, what purpose does the law serve? He answers that in verse 19 that we'll get to in a minute. But these two points were important for the Galatians then. And of course, they're important for us as well. So if you would, let's stand together. We're not going to read the entire passage again as Wes has already done. But let's read verses 15 to 18 together. So if you would stand in the honor of God's word and reading of it. I'll begin in verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the preaching of it. Would you bend our wills to yours? Would you change us? May we be different as we leave. Because we have heard from you. May we see Jesus. It is in him that we have our hope, our only hope. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So our outline, two points, uh, pretty straightforward. The power of the promise And the purpose of the law, and you'll find that in the back of your bulletin, those two points that are there in the note-taking guide. Uh, As we've seen throughout our study, the Judaizers were intent on making others join them in keeping the law for their salvation. Uh, They seem bent upon bringing that about. And one of those reasons, or one of the reasons that they attempted to use to rationalize their position, 
was that they said that the law came after the promise. It actually it had come 430 years after. And because it had come after, they believed, just chronologically speaking, that it made sense that the law would therefore replace the, God, uh, re- replace the promise. In other words, the law had been given after, and so it just, it, it just made logical sense in their minds that, that the promise would be set aside because that is what, what most would remember. And from verses 15 to 18, Paul lays out an argument why, why that just doesn't, it just didn't matter. It didn't matter chronologically, and it really didn't even matter logically. But before we look at that argument, he he makes four points in verses 15 to 18. But before we look at that, I want us to notice uh, the tone change. And I want us to notice that because I was was pretty intense or pretty specific about it last week. I even gave him a little bit of a hard time, though I justified where he was coming from. Uh, And I want to give him a break at this point because we see that he moves from that, that language of fool to the language of brother. He says, to give you a human example, brothers, he's been very angry to the point of calling them fools, to the point of saying that they've lost their minds. But here the language changes. Of course, I I said that he, he was angry, but that anger was coming from a place of sadness and compassion and pity. And he wasn't wanting to destroy them. We used uh, Luther's phrase. He didn't want to destroy them. He wanted to amend them. And it's as if here at this point, in the midst of that, he takes a step back, takes a deep breath, and decides that maybe he ought to change his approach so that they might listen a little better. And so the language is less intense. The language uh, happens to be more affectionate and friendly. And having taken that step back and having taken that breath, he then lays out these Four, or this full, four, uh, full, four-fold argument to build his case that, that is in itself logical, biblical, and practical. First in verse 15, uh, he says, You know as well as I do, speaking to the Galatians, you know as well as I do that when a covenant is made between people, this is the human example, and when a covenant is made between two people, he says that, that it cannot be annulled or fixed or, or changed once it's been fixed or ratified. It, it's done. And he says, and if that's the case for a covenant or an agreement between two, two human beings, two men or or two men, then it's even stronger a case that the same can be said of a, of a covenant between God and man. And he says, even in, uh, in particular, this covenant between uh, God and Abraham, the covenant upon which our salvation stands. Then in verse 16, he adds to the argument and he says that the promise that we read about that's mentioned in Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 22 and 24 and other places that it's referred to. uh, He makes this covenant. God makes this covenant with Abraham and his offspring. And there is a a group or a collective sense in which he's speaking. It is plural. But Paul points out that that word can also be used in a singular sense or an individual sense. Uh, We do it all the time. We say things like, I'm going to, I have a seed. Or we say, I'm going to cast seed. 
And here it's, it's offspring. We have offspring and we refer to one offspring or we can say these are my offspring and it be in a plural sense. And Paul says, yes, Abraham uses or God uses that term offspring and it is collective and plural. But specifically, there is an individual sense here. There is a, a um, uh, within that group or within that collective, there was one to which God was making that promise and that one was Christ himself. So he's made it with Abraham and his offspring in a collective sense, but particularly he's made this promise to Jesus. And and so we know that all of the promises, these promises to Abraham, all of the promises in scriptures are yes and amen in Christ. Now, thirdly, he says in verse 17 that chronology is irrelevant. It doesn't matter when which was given, even though the law was given 430 years after Uh, The law was not only unable to bring the blessing of salvation, it was also unable to thwart the blessing of salvation. It wasn't going to get in the way just because it happened later. Because, Because of the power of the promise. And the power of the promise comes from the fact that the promise was made and ratified by God Himself. It was cut by God. We have to remember that there was no no negotiation between Abraham and God when it came to this covenant. God simply made the promise. Abraham was a recipient of that promise. The covenant was cut by God who took on all the obligations upon himself to fulfill that promise on Abraham's behalf and ultimately, of course, on Christ's behalf. Uh, The writer of Hebrews, who some argue was Paul, put it this way. uh, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So then God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God made the promise. And then finally in verse 18. He says the bottom line is this. That if salvation came by the law. It can't come by the promise. Something very similar that he said last week. The two are mutually exclusive. As one pastor I read this week said, the inheritance either either comes by the uh, giver's promise or it comes by the recipient's performance. It's either the giver's promise or the recipient's performance for a promise is believed and received. But the law is obeyed and earned. And so it can't be both. Now. Brothers and sisters, the question for us tonight as we make our way through this powerful promise, the question simply is, do you, do I, do we believe the promise? Do we believe the promise or not? Do we believe the promise that God made to Abraham and to his spiritual offspring and ultimately to Christ? Are are we looking to Christ and trusting him for salvation? And do we believe the promises have been given to us and our children? You know, our salvation is not secured 
It is not maintained in any way by our work. There's nothing that we can do. It's not determined in any way by our ability or our lack of ability to keep the law. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. A phrase that we've said over and over and over for the last several weeks and will continue to through the end of the book of Galatians. That's the promise of God. And I know that's hard. Let's admit, it's hard to receive that and believe in that promise. And why is that so? Because we live in a time when people don't keep their word. We live in a time when promises are not kept. Whether it be spouses or employers or politicians or even pastors. Right? It's in the news all the time. The making of declarations. The making of statements. Saying that something will be true or something will happen. And that somehow we have the, the responsibility, but more so the right to expect the fulfillment of those declarations. I mean, that's the definition of promise. And what happens? Time and time again, those expectations aren't fulfilled. And we're let down. Very few people today are keepers of their word. Even the most... Im- Uh, Even those with the most impeccable character are unable to keep their word all the time. And so we therefore struggle. It's easy to fall prey to the same temptation that Adam and Eve fell into in the garden. Remember what they heard from Satan and what they believed? The, The question was, did God really say? And we find ourselves hearing this promise that God has made to Abraham and we read it in his word and we're bombarded by by events and circumstances around us where people don't keep their word and we fall prey and hear that same phrase, don't we? Did God really say that we're saved by grace alone? So tonight be encouraged. Be encouraged in the words of the hymn writer, Henry Van Dyke. May the God of glory and Lord of love drive the dark of doubt away tonight. The promise wasn't made by Abraham. The promise was wasn't made by man. Man had nothing to do at all. Man has nothing to do at all with the making or the keeping of this promise of God's promise to us. It was ratified by him. He swore by his name in Genesis 15. When when God ratifies this covenant with Abraham, Abraham's asleep. And it's God that walks through between the animals. It's God who says, if I do not do what I've promised to do, may, may it be done to me what's been done to these animals. Abraham's awakened and the promise has been made. We therefore can trust in the promises because, again, that promise was not just made to Abraham. That promise was made to Abraham and his offspring. All of those who are his spiritual descendants, but most importantly to the offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise was made to him who not only was Abraham's offspring, but remember, Jesus was God himself. So those who have placed their faith in Christ, though unholy, have been declared not guilty by a holy God. We stand justified before him and we can expect 
the declaration to be true and we can expect all of the benefits of that declaration to come to us. And we don't have those expectations because of anything in us or anything that we've done. But we have those expectations because the promise was made to Christ. And by Christ's spirit, we are united to him. And all that is his is ours. That is a powerful promise. On which we must believe And in which we must rest. But the natural question comes, right? Okay. The promise. We believe the promise. But if the promise, why the law? What's what's the point of the law, right? It it doesn't quite make sense. Or at least it didn't to the Galatians because Paul is, you know, getting ahead of them. He knows that the question is going to come. And it's a question that we ask ourselves, Because it doesn't always make sense. But it is a natural question. It's a good question. And so why is the law needed? And and Paul gives two explanations. One, he says it points out our sin. And two, it points us to the Savior. Look at verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Paul says the law wasn't originally a part of the promise. Right. The law was given after. Right. We, we haven't we haven't brought the law alongside and and melded the two together because they are they are they are separate. But it, it, it came. It was given. It was given through Moses. And he says it was given first to point out our sin. And we say, well, how did how did it do that? How does it do that? Well, I want to read from. Romans chapter 7, because Paul gives a pretty good explanation of how that works. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law was put in place. Paul says the law was put in place to expose us of our sin. It exposes our sin. It was put in place to name our sin. It was put in place to call it what it was. And really there's a reality in which it was even even given to provoke it. You you know, to, to stick at it. Right? To egg it on. It was given and it antagonizes us. And it doesn't just identify sin, but it shows how desperate we are in light of it. It shows... It shows the bondage that we're in. It reminds us of our lack of holiness and it reminds us of our lack of righteousness before a holy and righteous God. And and it's somewhat of a weak illustration, but I I think it helps us. We we, we look at a a speed limit sign going down the highway. Right. If the speed limit sign was there, we don't know how fast we are to go or not to go. And so we just sometimes go as fast as we can because it's not marked. The minute the speed sign, the uh, speed limit sign goes up, we now know what speeding is. It identifies it. It names it. And what do we do? 
In some cases, it restrains. In others, what? We push the limit. We want to get as close to it as, as we can. Or we want to go beyond it to that which, right, the police will allow. It awakens something within us to go beyond what it stated. Eggs us on, antagonizes a little bit. It's what the law does. It's what the law does with our sin. But that doesn't make the law contrary to the gospel. It doesn't make it contrary to the promise. It actually is complementary to it. And that's Paul's language. It's, it doesn't contradict. It's not contrary. It complements. Because it not only points out our sin, it points us to the Savior. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul uses a couple of metaphors here to explain how the law points to, points to our Savior. First, he uses the metaphor of a jailer. He says the law imprisons us. It restricts us. It, it, uh, it, it keeps us from escaping the reality of our sin in our relation to it. We cannot run from our sin because of what the law keeps before us. The law hedges us, hedges, hedges us in so that we, we cannot turn our back to it. We're constantly faced with the reality of what sin does. And it keeps in front of us our lack of ability to overpower it. He also uses the metaphor of a guardian or a tutor. Maybe your translation might say. And, and the law's purpose was to continually point us to our need for that to be remedied. Because what the law does is it, it keeps us, like we're in bondage to sin. The law, the law in, uh, imprisons us within our bondage to sin, in our bondage of sin, keeps us looking at it, keep, keeps us face to face with it. But then it also continues to point us to the fact that we need to be delivered from it, but the law itself cannot provide the power to do it. It points us to Jesus. We realize as we read it and as we're confronted by it that we're in bondage to it, but we can't do anything about it. Helpless and hopeless apart from intervention outside of ourselves. And of course, that intervention is provided by the Lord Jesus. Our justification and our being made right and our sanctification, our growth and grace are possible only by faith alone in Him. Alone, And we understand that, right? We understand it. The more we realize, the more of the law that we read, that Chris even said that tonight before our confession of sin. As we read the law, we realize how significantly we fall short of God's standard. We realize how, how we fall short of His holiness and His righteousness. We realize more and more how sinful we are and how, how great our need really is. 
And we're going to feel the weight of that. I'll just give you a heads up. We're going to really feel the weight of that in the winter, the fall and winter as we go through Leviticus. But we need to. We need to because that's what the law does. And the law points us to our sin, but it points us to our Savior. We also know that the more that we look at the law, the more we are pointed to Christ. The more we see the law, the more we see Him. The law leads us to our only hope. We are led to a place of understanding that salvation is in the hands of God. And our salvation is received and not earned or merited in any way. It's by promise through faith in Christ that our salvation comes. And so we are able, as those who have come to faith in Christ and have placed our faith in, in Him and our eyes are, are drawn to Him and we, and we look to Him and trust in Him for salvation, that we see that, that the law then becomes a means by which we may love and serve our King. The obedience that the law demands is becomes something uh, rather than coercive, uh, rather than being coerced and frightened by it. We now see it and understand it and and willfully and gratefully pursue it, pursue fulfillment of it out of gratitude for the grace that we've been shown. I love again how. This pastor put it, he said, we become better in our obedience to the law when grateful joy is our motive. It leads us to endurance in our obedience rather than fearful compliance. It leads us to endurance in our obedience rather than fearful compliance. And just as a side note, you know, this is... Really, we, we hear a lot of studies and questions and why are so many people, you know, apparently more and more people are leaving the church and church attendance is down over the last 20 years. And, and, and folks have all these reasons why. And so they're trying to pragmatically adjust their methods to, to change the tide and all of that. But, but the reality is, I believe that they leave because every Sunday, by the time the sermon is over, they leave heavy laden, beat up and broken and hopeless. Because... Sunday after Sunday and week after week, they hear the law that says, try harder, do better, meet this standard. And the law does its job. The law does its job and points out their sin and their their inability. And unfortunately, what happens, though, is the gospel never follows. The gospel never follows. And so they don't hear to that which the law also points. They never hear of the hope found in Christ. They remain imprisoned by the law. They remain, um, they, they, they never hear that the gospel is what provides the power to, to do that which they've been called to do. And they never hear the good news that God has promised to make right all of those who have fallen short. They never hear of the importance of trusting in His work on their behalf. And then, and then the law never becomes a delight. And they leave. That being said, I, I know because I'm the same way. Our wiring is such that we, we are bent toward law keeping and doing. It's just it's how, how it is. We like our lists. 
we, we want people to tell us what to do to make things better. And, and so that kind of that kind of law only that's that's very appealing, but but it's appealing for us as well. And so what happens is that sometimes even the appreciation of a sermon is determined by whether or not there were you know, some really meaty points of application. But Paul's letters are purposefully structured. They're purposefully structured so that the first half or more are declarative. Right? They, they speak of who we are. And the second half or less are imperative oriented. In other words, the first half or more declares who we are in Christ. The, the second half or less explains what it is that we should go and do in light of who we are. Now, what that doesn't mean is that there's nothing practical in terms of application, things to go and do in the, the first half or more. We can do that. However, I think that this is a preaching through these first this first half of these letters really makes it very, very appropriate for the call and the application to be not go and do, but believe. The call is believe. Because we're speaking of a promise. We're speaking of a declaration of who we are in Christ. So the call is to believe. So as we go tonight, I I want to encourage us all to believe the promises, to believe the promise, to believe that which we've heard, to believe Christ, to believe to believe the promise of where our salvation is rooted and and that our salvation is in Christ. And and I want us to believe and I want us to hear the words of this promise and, and really Kind of a summary of the sermon through the words that we've already sung and are about to sing. Brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord and not in your own merit. In Him may your soul rest and may His word uphold your fainting spirit. May His promised mercy be your fort, your comfort, and sweet support. Because though the world may change its fashion, He is the same. His compassion and His covenant through all ages will remain. Look at Jesus Christ who redeems His precious bride by His costly sacrifice. And though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded your helpless estate and shed His own blood for your soul. Those he saves are his delight. Precious in his holy sight. He'll not let your soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will 
hold you fast. Brothers and sisters, believe. Believe. Let's pray together.